0: What do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean more? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Hi, and welcome to The Rock. If you've ever been involved in a relational conflict in a church setting, you'll benefit greatly from the insights found here in 2 Corinthians. Pastor Paul must defend himself and his ministry against false accusations made by church troublemakers. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse series through 2 Corinthians entitled, Strength Through Weakness. All right, good evening everybody. It is time to dig back in to 2 Corinthians chapter three. We're going to pick up where we left off, like we always do. And tonight, just a really hopeful study, a passage that helps us figure out what our Christian life is supposed to be all about. So if you're in doubt, <laughs> you will be enlightened this evening. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Now, Father God, as we sang and worshiped the prayer to open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, we... Very much need that to happen for us to discern these truths. Lord, we need the help of the Holy Spirit is with us and in our hearts given from heaven for that very purpose to help us with these things. So help us to cooperate with you helping us, Lord, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Everybody has heard and probably has used the expression, you know, back in the good old days. And we tend to like to romanticize the days gone by. But if you recall, Ecclesiastes, Solomon said that that kind of thinking is not wise. He said, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Questions and so the new living translation puts it this way don 't long for the good old days that 's not smart now, I think the reason for that is is that when we 're constantly living in the past or looking back we 're not present. right there for the day to live as God would have us live. And so I think that's part of why it's not wise to romanticize the past. But it would be great advice for these Corinthians, especially uh, in light of what's going on. They were tempted here in chapter three, we see that they're tempted to be longing for the good old days of the Old Testament. The good old days of Moses and the law and the sacrifices, even though they were born-again Christians, uh, they were tempted uh, to uh, put the the car in reverse, as it were, to go back to rules and regulations that quite frankly, are attractive. And they're a lot less complicated than living a day-to-day relationship with the living God in some ways. And, and so that wasn't wise that they were tempted to, to do that. And here in chapter 3, we're going to find out that it wasn't their idea, of course, it wasn't the congregation's idea to romanticize the Old Testament, even though they were New uh, Testament Gentiles. Christians there in Corinth, right? Uh, but there were some apparently new books, wink, wink, blogs out there, you know, at the Christian bookstore at the corner of Corinth and Thessalonica. <laughs> and, you know, the hipsters are, are coming in with cool, fresh faces and fresh ideas about what getting back to the basics is all about. And so on top of all their other troubles, there at Corinth, uh, of course, which includes... Uh, The members of the congregation in in sinful lifestyles. Paul trying to correct them and then taking all of that flack. And uh, those who got offended by his corrections uh, became troublemakers and began slandering him and being divisive and false accusations and all of that, as we've been seeing. Now, to make matters worse, there arriving in Corinth are these wannabe pastors. I call them posers. All right, Uh, courtesy of the evil one, right on the heels of everybody kind of mad at the apostle Paul comes in, uses his authority to correct everybody. And so now uh, a few of them are mad and causing trouble. But the wannabe pastors, and in chapter 11, he identifies them. He calls them false apostles. The word apostle really means missionary, So these evangelists who come into town, he said they were deceitful workers, chapter 11, all right, and masquerading as apostles of Christ, but working for the evil one. So these are the guys who come in, take advantage of everybody kind of being a little upset with Paul, and they're going to fan those flames because they want to be the new pastors, and uh, this is a terrible thing because their theology is just whacked out. And so these false apostles, they want Paul's job, so they join the anti-Paul movement, and they're questioning his character and qualifications and credentials, and introducing these new Jewish heresies. Uh, legalism, they want to return to the Old Testament way of life, as I've been saying. And and how we know this is just to, to fast forward to chapter 11. I'll just read it to you. He says, are these guys who are trying to tempt you to go back, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So to a Gentile congregation, in come these Jewish So-called believers and saying to these Gentiles, the non-Jews, hey, are you eating pork chops? Are you kidding me? You know, what do you do on Saturdays? You're working on Saturdays, man. Let us tell you, we're the Hebrews. We're the root and foundation. Let us kind of correct you, second-class, misinformed Gentiles, uh, about what true religion is all about. And it's all about rules and legalism. So that's where we pick up tonight. It's where we left off. It's where we get underway tonight. Uh, Let me put up uh, verse 6 of chapter 3 just for some context as we get situated because we left off on this verse and I got to refresh your memory and then we'll dive in and finish the chapter. The question you're asking yourself is a question I ask myself while I'm studying this passage. Do I have more of a religion of rules than a relationship with God? Is when I define Christianity or somebody asks me why I'm a Christian or, or what's the Christian life about, do, do I go to behavior? To do's and don'ts? Or, what, or who I am and who he is and who I know and what he's making me? Right, Those are some of the questions because uh, it's a slippery slope, as you'll see uh, tonight. So with verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives Life And so now he's, uh, he's introducing the heresy, the problem, the Hebrew heresy, as it were. Paul's strategy now is going to compare and contrast the gospel to what these guys were preaching. Uh, the truth lined up against the error. And this is what is going to follow the rest of chapter 3. And um, very helpful understanding to understand the relationship between the Old Testament uh, with its good purpose, but its limitations and its weakness and its temporary nature that God intended the Old Testament to be, as good as it is. And then uh, next to the New Testament, which he's going to nickname the Ministry of the Spirit. And the Old Testament uh, ministry of Moses and Judaism, he's going to nickname the ministry of the letter of the laws. I want to explain that. First of all, I think it's important to understand. what is. We say it all the time, New Testament, Old Testament. Do you even know what the word testament means? So I mean, it gets confusing. The New Testament, New Covenant, it's the same word. And what it means is an agreement. So the old agreement that God made with his people was um, keep these laws and you will be blessed. And of course, to to know him, you had to have faith and you kept the laws because of faith, right? And so we're always saved by faith, old and new. But it was a kind of a giving of the law with the intention uh, to lead us, to show us that we have a need to be saved. That kind of thing. Now, the Old Testament said about the Old Testament that there's this new arrangement coming. Arrangement, testament, covenant, same words. That God was going to, uh, that the Old Testament would give way and fade away to this new thing. And he says in Jeremiah 31, I will write my law on your hearts, my moral law on their hearts. And my spirit will make you alive inside. It'll change your hearts. It'll give you life instead of letters written on stone. So there's this juxtaposition of the law that came down, the thou shalt not murder kind of thing, or thou shalt remember the Lord, number one in our lives, next to um The grace just juxtapositioned next to the grace of God and the cross. And so uh, grace is versus law there. So to sum it up, the two dispensations really are either do this or die or trust Christ and live. And so uh, the gospel was unconditional agreement, John 3.16. So here's the law, you got to do this, you got to keep them all, right, or die, versus for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes. So it's 613 laws or whosoever believes. And so that's what he's putting uh, side by side like that. So to sum it up, the New Testament is a ministry of spirit, he says, of life, And then the Old Testament is the ministry of the letter of the law. So why does he shorten it from the the letter of the law to letter? Because at the end of the day, all you have with a law is the letters that make up that law. It just condemns you. So you, you have no power to be changed. It just tells you that you are condemned because you have broken the law. And so... That's what's left is just a bunch of letters. Thou shalt not, but thou shalt, but we shalt. That's the problem. And, and we find out that we're sinners and so all of that. So the letters or the commands, the rules are good and right, but uh, they can't save you. They can't love you. Uh, they can't transform you. They can only point out. They can't even say a good word for you on your behalf. Uh, What the law will say on your behalf is this guy is messed up and all this guy does is break laws. That's what laws do. And so in come the Hebrew heretics and uh, they say, let's get back to the pure religion. You know, you poor misguided uh, Greeks, let us help you uh, shackle your soul to the letter of the law. So Paul says Nonsense. So starting in verse 7, uh, he's going to compare their theology of making lists, do's and don'ts to the grace of God. All right. So here, here Paul says, okay, that's a bunch of nonsense. 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory... So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious had no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. There's a lot of glory in this paragraph if you haven't noticed. And if what was fading came away with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Okay, so let's take a look at that. Time to compare and contrast the two camps of law and grace. So notice number one. uh, Not one blessed thing is wrong with Old Testament laws. It's just that they are fulfilled and surpassed with something much better. So um, maybe first we should talk about the proper understanding of Old Testament law. Okay, there are three different kinds of Old Testament law. Number one, there are laws uh, for the nation. All right? And so those laws don't apply to the church. We're not a nation. We're a church. We're the church. Number two, there are ceremonial laws. Laws that regulated Judaism, how they worshiped the Lord. Uh, laws about sacrifice. Laws about Sabbath keeping. Laws about their religion. Now, all of those laws were fulfilled through Christ and the cross. And so, those laws are suspended. because They don't apply to us because we, uh, Christ has fulfilled them. And then, thirdly and lastly, there's... Uh, God's moral laws, and those laws never change, okay? So sometimes the New Testament will call that the law of Christ. It's just the eternal moral law, thou shalt not murder. There's never going to be a time when God says, okay, you know, we're done with that. It's okay now, you know, as much as maybe some people uh, would hope that that would be released, some of uh, those laws Now, uh, uh, sadly, and this is a quote here, some believers in their ignorance and to their own detriment, uh, dismiss the entirety of the Old Testament as if it had been done away with. No, no. It's the word of God. Right, it, You need a proper understanding of those laws. And once you understand uh, the ceremonial laws don't apply to us because they're fulfilled in Christ. And the national laws don't apply to us because we're a church. Everything else, the Bible characters, the heroes, the history of, of Israel, God's redemption, redemptive plan, the, the account of creation, the fall, the flood... The tower, the creation of nations, all of this is the word of God. But you have Christians today who say, you know what, you know, it's fulfilled. So, you know, I don't read the Old Testament and that's a shame. And so, and by the way, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 855 times. Because the New Testament is built on the foundation of the truth found in the Old Testament. And when Jesus is asked a question, he'll go to the Old Testament to support a truth that he's teaching. And so if and the Old Testament is alive and well. All scripture is inspired by God it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do uh, what is right. So these guys are bringing back the religious rules, all right? Now, they are more of the man-made interpretation of those 613 laws. That these guys came into Corinth and said, uh, let's talk to you about things like the focusing on your good works. Let's talk about um, kosher foods. Uh, Let's talk about what you should be wearing and not wearing. What you should be doing on Saturday, the Sabbath, and those kinds of things. So, they're not even real Laws from God—they're the interpretation of how to please God by a misunderstanding. And so, in, in a modern version, it would be like—I like to harp on the Christmas tree people, who, who Christians who don't like Christmas uh, at all and don't like Christmas trees. And they didn't like—you know—50 years ago, they uh, they didn't like board games for some reason. I don't—I can't figure out. Why that would be, and I'm sure some of you could tell me later, thank you, but <laughs> I think I'll skip that part too, uh, uh, secular music and, and movies and, and places to go and things we like to eat and how to dress and all of that. Now... Uh, we were out to lunch on Sunday afternoon after church, and we were seated right next to people. You know how they do that. They're like, well, we should introduce ourselves. Since you're right here at our table. And they were all dressed to the nines. All The ladies had long skirts on, and the guys had uh, suits on. And and uh, so I said to them, you know, what church do you go to? And there was the face. And he says to me, he says, uh we don't go to any church. We read the King James Bible where it tells us that we only meet in homes. And then, you know, I was having a bad day, I guess. <laughs> I, I was a little hungry. I was a little hangry. And just rubbed me the wrong way. And I said to him, I said, oh, that's right. You guys mean in homes, you're so much holier and better than than all of us other pagans and heathens who actually get together to worship God, actually like in a building. We're terrible. You know? And so he kind of looked at me like, whoa, that's different, you know. <laughs> and so we walked away mumbling something about the King James Bible and and, and that's and I said something about the temple. What about the temple? And what the book of acts just the book of acts records only 30 years of christianity 30 years and in those 30 years they started in house they started in the temple that's a big building and they met daily at the temple until they got kicked out and when they got kicked out In the first 30 years, it wasn't the custom and buildings weren't available for churches because guess what? There weren't any. And as soon as the church got up and running and they figured out, hey, we're growing, they started renting halls like in the book of Acts. Paul rents a hall. Now I know you're thinking like, hey, dude, we're with you on this. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, we weren't at that little lunch, (laughs) you know? But I'm just saying that that's the spirit of what came into Corinth and said, you, you mean in a building? Oh, how terrible, awful, you know. And so Paul was like, hey, I got to stop these guys. Now, now, the thing about this is, is that the reason why this is important is because it's so attractive. It's so attractive. Colossians chapter 2 says this. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. There's no life in them. Who cares whether you've got a tree in your house or not or whether it's a big building or a little room or a little house. It does not It does not matter. And whether you're eating this or eating that, Jesus says you, it goes in your mouth and it comes out of your body and it doesn't affect your heart. Those are Jesus words. But we want our list and we want to feel better. and We want to walk out of that restaurant thinking, boy, I'm a cut above those building worshiping pagans. (laughs) I'm done. There. Okay. And by the way, my wife told me when we got in the car, you sounded a little harsh. And I just smiled and said, honey, I love you. And I received that criticism. Okay. Maybe I didn't do that. Now, Paul. Paul, okay, let's dive in. Paul's not gonna disrespect the Old Testament. He's just gonna exalt the new. And he's, he's just going to say, uh, "Let me show you its superiority and its supremacy." And why? And here's his point. Paul is going to make the point in the next paragraph. This is why we're so bold. All right. He's going to say, "This is what puts the fire in the hearts of ministers uh, to encourage and rebuke with all authority." That's he's defending. They're saying, "What are you so bold? And you think you can come in here? And what, why are you so excited about getting everybody in shape and in line?" And he's saying, "This is the reason." Uh, now, uh, yes, verses seven here, here. So he's going to parallel the ex- Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35, when Moses comes down with the two tablets, and his face is so shiny, it freaks the, the Jewish people out a little bit, apparently, at first, and he puts a veil over his face, huh? and this is the parallel. The scene that Paul is going to now make an analogy compared to the New Testament. So he's going to kind of uh, contrast three things from the incident of Moses coming down with the shiny face with the tablets, all right? So, first of all, he's going to go from the greater to the lesser, from the lesser to the greater argument. And so, number one, he's going to say, if the ministry of death, was glorious and splendorous. Splendorous, is that a word? (laughs) I made it up. If it's it's splendid, all right, when he comes down the mountain, there's uh, Shekinah glory. His face is shining. At the tabernacle, God shows up. The mountain was glowing, the angels and all of this stuff. If it was glorious when it was a ministry of death, meaning it says do this or die and you've done it, so you're a dead man. How much more glorious the ministry of the spirit that reconciles you to God and makes you alive. So wouldn't that make sense that the New Testament is uh, is better? Now, and secondly, he says, if the glory and the splendor of the ministry that condemns somebody is glorious, then how about, the ministry that makes people right with God. So it's kind of a similar thought there. And then thirdly, he says, if the temporary fix, Judaism, with the sacrifice of animals and Yom Kippur and all of that was a glorious good thing, how much more the permanent uh, resolve of forgiveness of sins through, through the death of Christ on our behalf? And so clearly the good old days were good, But the present reality in Christ and the gospel, the Holy Spirit in our hearts is better. And that's his point. So uh, verse 10, look at verse 10. It says, Judaism kind of lost its glory when you compare a slain bull next to the slain son of God. Okay? Or when you compare 613 commandments to John 3.3, you need to be born again. Or when you compare Moses to Jesus... There's just simply no comparison. And that's why Jesus described Judaism this way. Right before he went to the cross, he said, listen, Judaism is like this 2,000-year-old sweater. It's got a hole in it. And when it's 2,000 years old and has done its job for 2,000 years then we're not going to patch that up. I'm not here to mend Judaism. I'm here to say, Judaism is done and now it produced me. And I'm the answer to everything the Old Testament was pointing to. So we we need a new sweater, not the old one. And then he says, or think of it as a wineskin. That's a 2,000 year old one. Because Abraham is 2,000 years before Christ. So Judaism is 2,000 years until Christ. So he says, Judaism is kind of like an old stretched out wineskin. The wine, the new wine that I brought, you can't, that wineskin can't accommodate. You put it in there, it'll expand and bam, bam, you have a disaster. And so beautiful in their day was that sweater, that garment, and that wineskin in their day for the reason. And he says, but something more beautiful is here. So let's finish the chapter now, 12 through 18. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses who, wow, check this out, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers Jewish people's hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, so he introduced the, the heresy, then he compared and contrasted it with the gospel. And now time for some application. How about that veil on Moses' face and that fading shine and all of that? So it turns out, Moses had something to conceal with that veil. Uh, Judaism was given with the design to fade away. And Paul saying, uh, evangelists like Paul have nothing to hide because the gospel shines. On forever. And so a new revelation here, wow, by the Holy Spirit through Paul for the reason for the veil. At first, everybody thinks, you know, the veil is because people are like, whoa, they're gonna, they might worship Moses or they're freaked out by the shine. But he kept the veil on because it was fading. And who wants a leader whose glory is fading? And so Moses kept the veil on, even though God was saying the glory of the Old Testament will fade. And that's really what God was doing when he allowed that glory to fade from his face. But Moses, not wanting to give the Jews yet another reason to pick up and want to go back to Egypt. You know, I could just hear them, oive. Is it just me or was pastor's sermon on Deuteronomy chapter four, you know which was his sermon by the way Deuteronomy the whole book you know was his was his sermon uh you know not as anointed, not as dynamic is the light is it just me or is it the light kind of fading away from him shouldn't we elect Joshua or shouldn't we get rid of both of them and go back to egypt and so I think and Commentators say that the reason Moses had that veil on his face was to protect the Israelites from being disappointed and from turning away and rebelling. Here's what one commentator said. Yes, the veil helped the Jewish people not to see the fading glory. Moses' face, which would stand for the fading temporary nature of Judaism... Maybe they should have been allowed to see it, Paul argues, because sadly, now that same veil now covers their hearts. When Jewish people hear Moses' words, the commands regarding the Jewish faith, they don't understand that these things were made to be temporary and to fade away and point to Jesus, our Messiah, for eternal life and permanent forgiveness and salvation, relationship with God. And so... They didn't see the fading glory then because of the veil. And even now, when you read Deuteronomy to them or read them 300 promises and prophecies about their Messiah, 300, you you can show them a believing Jew. Let me show you. Abraham offering his only son on the same hill that Jesus has sacrificed God's only son. Let me me show you where he'd be born. How he would live. To whom he was born. How he would die. Where he would be buried. 300 of those kinds of prophecies. But he's saying, even when he's preached, Moses is preached now. The Old Testament is preached now. There's this. Veil. They are spiritually blind to the truth. We were in Israel, you know, we had the first time that I ever went in 1999. And our tour guide was a non-belie- non-believing uh, Jew. She was Jewish, but not a Christian, I should say. Uh, and so I took her uh, aside. She knew, knows way more about the Old Testament than I could ever dream to know. And uh, took her side and read Isaiah 53 with her. That he was pierced. Who, who's the suffering Messiah? It says the Messiah will be pierced for our transgressions. And he would be an offering for the whole world, but that God would raise him up. It's like, who is this person? Psalm 22, before, a thousand years before Roman uh, crucifixion, they pierced my hands and feet. i showing her all of the things. Who is this? And she says, It's Israel. How do you pull Israel's beard out and pierce Israel? It's through the world's anti-Semitism, right? But, and then the Lord said, veil. It's the veil, right? So they have this kind of veil, and it's not a curse from God, and it's not supernatural. I mean, if you want to talk about who's the source of the veil of any unbeliever's heart, that covers us is he's going to say in next chapter, he's going to say, the God of this age blinds the minds of those who don't believe. So a veil really is self-administered. You hear the gospel, you respond negatively, you put your own veil on. And he says, he, he continues on, Verse 16, but there's hope, he says. When a person turns to the Lord, if when you're hearing the gospel, there's a little bit of turning and cooperating and believing, then God, by his spirit, will lift the veil. And it's a beautiful thing. Whether you're Jewish, he means, he says, when a person, whosoever. So a Jew or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or a guy who just didn't care about anything except his own pleasure at 19 years old, my life, June 3rd, 1979, the Lord lifted the veil and I'm on a sidewalk in front of a bar with totally open understanding of a heaven and a hell of a Jesus that I've been running from. But God, as you well know, comes in and reaches into our hearts and lives and, and lifts the veil and opens our eyes. And so finally in verse 17, he says, he kind of rounds out his thoughts with the very inspiring and hopeful words here. A well-known verses 17 through and 18. He's saying, if that veil's gonna get lifted and you're gonna get saved, God is the one who has to do it. So let's understand who's at work here. So he says, now the Lord is the spirit, all right? So Jesus tells us that in John 16, he says, that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us, to, to uh, confront us, to soften our hearts, to open our hearts, and uh, to show us our condition and our need for Christ. And so here's, what's Paul, here's what Paul is saying. These people are fully aware of the Holy Spirit. They're obsessed with the Holy Spirit. They're obsessed. In, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, you guys don't lack one spiritual gift. And in fact, he had to kind of uh, rebuke them and correct them a little bit. Like, you guys, there's more to life than speaking in tongues and, and exercising your gifts of healing and all of this. I mean, they were just a wonderful, charismatic, first century church where a lot of miracles were happening by the Spirit. So he's trying to say, you know the Spirit? Guess who that is? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And so he wants them to see that the Holy Spirit is God. And he wants them to connect the dots now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one. But he wants them to understand the Lord who gave the commands in the Old Testament is the Lord who gave us his Spirit. And the Spirit at work among us is the same God who gave the commands. So why would that God want you to go back to the bondage of all of those rules that condemn? He wouldn't do that. And so that's what he's trying to say. So he's going to say, let's compare. Exodus 32, when Moses came down that mountain with the law, 3,000 people died because it's the ministry of condemnation. The law says, don't lie. If you lie or if you break the Sabbath, you're going to die. So it's a ministry of death. And as a token, 3,000 people died. Uh, that was the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, what, 1,500 years later, in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. So in the Lord, instead of the Lord giving the law, where 3,000 people died, the Lord gave the Spirit, and how many people got saved? 3,000. Did you catch that? So the day of Pentecost, when the law comes down from the mountain of the ministry of the letter that kills, 3,000 people die. And then the Lord, who is the Spirit, giving himself into our hearts to raise us from the dead, 3,000 people come to life. So he wants them to make the connection. So the Spirit is the Lord, Yahweh of the Old Testament, bringing you out of the ministry of death and fading glory into life and ever-increasing glory. Therefore, there's freedom. He wants you to be set free, not so that you can sin and break any rule you want, but that you be free not to sin because you're enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. When he says freedom, that word really means freedom from condemnation and guilt and frustration of not being able to be who God wants you to be. When we have the Holy Spirit, we have freedom and enablement to be who God called us to be. So the one who commands is the one who equips and enables. God would never tell you to be or do something that you couldn't do by his power and also freedom of access to the Lord's presence, which was unheard of in the Old Testament, that He could invite you. To say, "Let us therefore go boldly into God's throne room of grace, looking for uh, with confidence and boldness, so that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need." And so, verse eighteen kind of wraps it all up in such a beautiful way, and He says, "The whole point of the new the new covenant." Is moral transformation. Now, you need to hear this, all right? So it's something that rule-keeping and a rule-based relationship with God uh, and the letter of the law cannot do. It's about new life. It's about a new heart. It's about not wanting to do the wrong thing and having the power to abstain by the power... Of the spirit. This is moral transformation. This is what verse 18 is all about. It's about a new love, a joy, a peace, holiness, character. It's all of this. And it has (laughs) nothing to do about what you eat and don't eat, or whether you had a tree up last year or not, or whether you meet in a house or a building, or if you like Monopoly. I don't, still don't know what was wrong with Monopoly, but. All right. Marianne, will you tell me that? I never liked the game. You never liked Monopoly. All right. Good. That was helpful. <laughs> All right. So he says with unveiled faces, what does he mean? We're no longer blind. So we don't have anything between us and the Lord. So we come into his presence. We see the truth and that truth sets us free. And then he says something happens to us when we behold the truth and walk with the Lord. A couple different renderings here about what it means to reflect the image or the glory of the Lord. It really means, here's the basic idea. It means as we with unveiled eyes, we have full attention on the Lord. We spend time with him. We live in his presence. We're enjoying his love. We're in fellowship with each other where the the Lord is. We're two or three gathered. He's here. And the barriers are, are, are removed. And we have this intimate union with the Lord. Like Moses in God's presence, then we reflect his glory, his splendid character by the way we live. So in other words, in this dark world, we sort of glow in the dark a little bit. We have a little bit of light. So what does that look like? Well, when you have peace in the midst of your troubles, when you are forgiving, when you show mercy and kindness uh, in the face of somebody who's really rude, or when you love your enemies or go the extra mile or turn the other cheek, you are reflecting the glory the countenance, the character of God. As I said last week, when you're the only guy in the group that doesn't know what they're talking about, when you don't get the joke, you know, because you don't know what that means, because you don't expose yourself to those kinds of things, that stands out. It stands out. A strong marriage, a faithful husband. A woman who just only says a positive things and keeps a tight rein on her tongue. A man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church. These are ways that we reflect God's glory. We reflect his character. You know, I like what uh, Philippians uh, says, chapter 2. Do everything without complaining or arguing, that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and perverse generation, in which you shine as lights in this world, as you hold forth the word of life. So our speech, our choices, our decision, our values, everything like that is, is just like shining and he says, that's what happens. Now, it, it, it's, what's crazy about this is, is that you can have such an impact and you don't even know you're having an impact. I told you about the gal who was always cleaning out the lint traps and cleaning up the laundry room in her, in her apartment building. And the custodian noticed that she was so tidy and cleaned up everybody's mess. And one day he went to use the dryer and he saw that she had just used it and cleaned out the lint trap. And he he said, I want to talk to you. You're different. Why are you always cleaning up other people's messes and you always clean the lint trap out? Well, she started, she found a way to start talking about her relationship with the Lord. And then he wanted to know more. And then he ended up asking Christ to be his savior. Over a lint trap, right? <laughs> so you see, when, when there's this, like, what is it with you? Why are you always doing things that most people don't like to do? And she's just shining and saying, I just love, you know, I just feel, you know, I love the Lord. And I know, you know, and he's like. <laughs> and uh, God uses those kinds of things as we reflect him. And so what he's saying is. We're not like Moses, like, oh, oh no, this is going to fade away. He says, no, from the first day of faith till your final breath, God is at work, developing you ever-increasing love of God, ever-deepening understanding of who he is, a better ability to, to use self-control, to abstain from sin, to know his plan for your life. He says, it's always increasing. And now, in fact, it may do you and me some good to understand that this is our predestined, uh, our predestination. Romans 8, 28. Everybody loves this verse, but let me give you a reason not to like it so much. (laughs) God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, that's really nice. Do you want to know the definition of good? Read the next verse. It's to conform you to the image of his son. So God's definition of why you're going through this and how God can make it good is how it's going to make you more like Christ. More patient. More kind. More long-suffering. More other-centered. That's what... Hey, it's best to get with the program if you know what the program is. You know, if God says, listen, the overarching theme of your life is to, to morally transform you so that you're as loving as Christ, as patient as Christ, as morally pure as Christ. That's the overarching theme that God has for the life He made that I think I need to get with the program and start cooperating, lest I be going around the mountain and going around the mountain and going around the mountain because I'm not getting the lesson. And he can't work the good. He can't work it for good because I don't get what the good is. I thought the good was for my comfort or for my convenience or for my gain of some kind. He says, no, not really. It it could be, but it's for... Uh, changing you. Now I close with this quote. I saved the best for last. Here's what David Guzik says, a pastor acquaintance of mine. Here's what he says. Everyone wants to know how can I change? Or everyone wants to know how can they change? The best and most enduring change comes into our lives when we're transformed by the time we spend with the Lord Notice that we are being transformed. We are not transforming ourselves. There are other ways to change, such as guilt, willpower, coercion. But none of these things, none of these methods bring change that is deep and lasts as long as the transformation that comes by the spirit of God as we spend time in the presence of the Lord. This is really nice. But he's not saying, you know, work it up. Make it happen, man. But rather, work to put yourself in a posture. In the place where God can impact you and change you. Let God change you. And that happens here. That's happened tonight. You've been a little. There's a little sandpaper rubbing you a little bit. And polishing you here. Because he's here. And he's at work in you. So it's not so much up to you. It's not the person who runs but rests. It's not in in trying but in trusting. This is the beautiful thing is to put yourself, work to put yourself more Bible reading, Turn on the worship music more often, get in the presence, be singing more often, bring Christ up in the conversation more often. And those are the times where God will impact you and change you and transform you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and thank you that you want to change us. We want to be changed, God, because. As you transform us, Lord, we're blessed. We have peace and joy and wisdom, and we do what's right, and we're blessed. We're just blessed. It's sometimes still difficult, but there's that wonderful joy and peace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.